All right, good morning again. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you've hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Hang a left. Last week we began a series here on Sunday mornings dealing with the theological understanding of what's called biblical eschatology. It's a great word to use in Scrabble especially if you get the triple letter score. But it is the study and the understanding of the last days. The Bible is clear and very simply spoken when it comes to the events of the last days. And all all those events are found in the book of Revelation. They are woven throughout the fabric of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to read the entire thing today. Wow, we're all out of sync here. You're supposed to laugh and joke. See what happens when we don't offer coffee on Sunday mornings? Maybe, there you go. Whenever you look at a single theological subject that is contained in the entire Bible, it becomes a task of discovering how to weave the various passages together so they are kept in the original context that they are found, but also begin to map out for us and piece together for us the events of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the events of the second coming of Christ found in the Old and the New Testament. When I was a kid, I say that now, and I'm like, man, that was longer than I thought, you know? When I was a kid, when it came to summer, my father used to love summer vacations. And a summer vacation for us included a station wagon, a road trip, and a Holiday Inn somewhere across our nation. And when we began to venture out to the various places that my dad would take us, and I'm talking about significant road trips, Florida from Chicago, California from Chicago. I'm talking about significant road trips to help entertain us because it wasn't a matter of minutes until my sister and I would begin to ask those questions that every child asks on the beginning of a road trip. Are we there yet? I've got to go pee. Um, Stop touching me. He's still touching me, etc. So my dad gave us this thing. It was called a road map. Now you have to picture this because we all have GPSs on our phone. It was a piece of paper that was a map of the entire United States. And you could never fold it back properly the way dad wanted it, you know. He usually kept it under the front seat of his car or in this glove compartment And to entertain us and to shut us up more specifically, he would give us this roadmap so we could find out where we were at various points along the way to discover how close we were to actually arriving at our destination. And, you know, sometimes it was psychologically defeating, you know, when my dad, when we would say, well, are we almost there yet? He would look on the map and we'd look on the map and we'd find out where we were and then he'd say, okay, well, how much more, how many more inches until we get there? And it'd be like a foot and a half, you know? It's like, we'll get there someday, you know. One time my <laughs> sister, 
I hope she's not watching online because I'm going to embarrass her. Um, my sister fell asleep in the car. And when she woke up, the very first thing she asked was, where are we? And so my dad, being my dad, and uh, I love him for it, gave her like the town that was like right next to our, where we lived, but we had been in the car for 14 hours already. And my sister, I think that's the first time I ever heard her swear out loud. And she was probably eight or seven at the time. And, and my dad, you know, we were, we were laughing because, you know, we were, we were making fun of her. But these roadmaps played such an integral part in long trips. And sometimes when we look at our Christian life, we feel that we are on a long journey, don't we? We read the accounts of the Bible that have taken place 2,000 years ago, and they're hard to reach and to wrap our understanding around and to relate to in many ways. But then we look forward, and we read about what God is going to do. And the same thing occurs. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. Is this really going to happen? Is this really going to occur? Well, let me tell you a little something about God. Everything that God has said will come to pass has come to pass except the prophecies of the last days, which are now unfolding before us. And everything that God says will happen will happen you can be assured of that. So what I wanted to do is provide a roadmap for you through our look at eschatology together to see where we are at on this journey between the time in which we got saved, either to the time he returns or the time we are called home to be with him in heaven. I wanted to give you a roadmap that you could look at and to understand. And where better to find that roadmap than in the Bible itself? Do you know that there were people in the Bible that were asking the same questions that you are asking yourselves today? They were going through crises, just like we're going through crises today, that would indicate to them that possibly they were in the middle of the great day of the Lord. That they had missed it. They were wondering and asking Paul now because they had received a letter, this church in Thessalonica had received a letter apparently uh, forged by someone with Paul's own name attached to it, saying that you're in the middle of the day of the Lord, this period of judgment that God has set forward to bring about upon all uh, creation for the purpose of restoring all creation. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing moves eschatology to the front of the line faster than a crisis. In 2001... After 9-11, 2008, when we had the financial collapse, 2020, where a pandemic has now been experienced by our generation, and then, of course, with the rioting taking place afterwards, you have to wonder, where are we on this roadmap? How close are we to the end of it all? But the end is just the beginning for you and I who are Christians. And that's the emphasis that I want to put forward throughout our study together. We are not looking for the Antichrist, we are looking for Jesus Christ. And through Paul's answering of this question that these people had, now when I say Paul, he was one of the apostles of the New Testament, 
by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the words in which God would have him to write, writing the vast majority of the New Testament that we have today. Paul now begins to answer questions concerning these last days because they were concerned. Are we in the midst of them? Have these things, this great tribulation period, this day of the Lord already begun in our time? One of the greatest detractors from biblical prophecy, the study of biblical prophecy, is when we begin to combine it with the various conspiracy theories that are out there, when we begin to sensationalize it to the point where we don't even recognize it anymore. There are two sets of issues that you need to contend with if you're going to study any um, topic or subject or specifically theology of scripture and that is the macro issues the overall issues and the micro issues and often we get caught in the weeds we begin to get lost in the trees if you will in the micro issues that we lose our sight of the macro issues now i can tell you that the world that i see around us today is not the world that existed just 20 years ago there are ideologies now being put forward that we never thought we would have to contend with or debate with, let alone saying 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And while so many got caught in the micro issues, we lost track of the macro issues, the big issues that are now on our doorstep, that are now being considered. And as we further this journey and as we continue on it and get closer to the end, the more confusing and chaotic it will become as we get closer to his return. But let us begin looking at our roadmap together. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul clearly articulates for them now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by either spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now as Paul moves us on this roadmap in chapter 2, there are various sites that I want us to visit, as my dad would always want to stop for the historical sites. And, you know, and the other thing, of course, that we had marked on every one of our maps is where the rest stations were along the highway. So you know, individuals who had trouble holding it for six minutes um, could be comforted to know that in 47 miles, there's another rest area coming up. Paul says a lot in these first two verses, and I don't want us to miss what he is saying here. I don't want you to miss by not looking at the key of the map to understand what the various symbols upon the map mean. Because Paul is writing to a group of people that he has already written to once. That's the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a city, and within that city was a church, and that church is whom, whom he is writing to. And they appear to have received a letter 
that indicates that the persecution, the suffering, the difficulty in which they are now currently experiencing as a church has been indicated as the beginning of the great day of the Lord, that they were in the period of judgment that God has prescribed to bring about onto this earth. This was confusing to them because of what Paul had written earlier in his first letter. And what he wrote in his first letter is found in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. When Paul wrote to them in concluding his letter to them, the first letter to them, he said, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He assures them that as believers in Jesus Christ, they have not been destined for wrath, being subject to the judgment of God. But now difficulties have come. Persecutions have come. Some are losing their life for the gospel's sake. And then they get this letter from who knows who and states, you're in the judgment of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were going to be spared the judgment of the Lord. Now this letter, this Spirit has spoken some type of word, as he indicates here, to say that we are in the middle of it all. And this was exceedingly troubling for them. It would be for me also. So as a result, Paul feels it incredibly necessary to write them immediately, and he does. The first two letters to the church of Thessalonica Scholars agree, and I agree with them, that the dating of these two letters would indicate that these are probably the first two letters that Paul wrote. And as a result, we discover that one of the subjects that many churches today have shied away from for the complexity of it or for the aspects of it that they feel are just unknowable, he felt that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ was a subject, eschatology was a subject that these new believers should be made aware of. Scholars hold to the position that Paul was with them for about six weeks. That's not a very long period of time. And in that six weeks, in all the doctrinal issues that he could address, he felt it necessary to also include the return of the Lord. I believe a healthy understanding of God's return. Now, let me make it clear. I am speaking of a physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Not a spiritual secret uh, uh, return to some mysterious location. I am talking about a physical return to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Mike, how many Facebook people have we lost just now? That's not a popular statement any longer. There are many Christians, evangelical Christians, who are shying away from the discussion of eschatology because they believe that the components of it are just unknowable and therefore this must indicate some kind of spiritual return. No, I believe Revelation 19 clearly tells us that Jesus Christ is physically going to return to this earth. Secondly, 
I believe that the Lord is going to remove those who are his prior to that return. It's an event called the rapture of the church. Notice with me in our text. He first makes it abundantly clear that he's writing concerning, number one, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one event. That's the second coming that he's referring to. Then notice that he says, and are gathering together to him. What does he mean by that? He's referring to this event called the rapture of the church. And I believe this is when he spares his people from the coming judgment that he is about to lay forward upon this earth. The rapture of the church was a subject that Paul spoke about in great detail in 1 Thessalonians, if you'd like to look there with me. Now again, as I stated last week, I hope you have a notebook with you so you can jot these down and reread them for yourselves. Because again, we are very concerned about not only bringing forward the proper scripture, but also keeping those scriptures in their proper context. Now, Paul made it clear when individuals were concerned about those who had died missing the resurrection, he said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It is a beautiful, soft word for those who have died. For the Christian in Christ, death is not something that we should fear. In fact, more people today actually fear the manner in which they are going to die more than the fact that they're going to die. But that being said, for a believer, the word asleep is used to indicate the death of a believer. Meaning that we close our eyes here and we open them in eternity with our Lord. Now, for those who have fallen asleep, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For we as believers have a lot of hope for those who die as Christians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this is what we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the uh, sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, notice here, verse 17, we who are alive and who are left shall be caught up. The Greek word is harpazo caught up, snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, notice this, verse 18 is key, into each other with these words. This is the rapture of the church. The second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church are two different events. Paul specifies that by his indication of those events and separating them grammatically with the word and, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. The coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and us, our gathering uh, us to Him are two different events. Now, many Christians believe in the rapture. However, though, the debate is when that rapture is going to happen. Some believe that it's going to happen, like I do, 
before we are plunged into this great period of judgment called the Great Tribulation. It is a period of seven years that is outlined for us in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. That seven-year period is given to us by a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, concerning a period of time that has still been assigned for the rebellion of the nation of Israel against God and will be fulfilled, therefore, in this tribulation period. And in fact, in Revelation uh, 6 through 19, that actual number of days is specified showing it to be a seven-year period of time according to the 360-day Jewish calendar. So when you read Revelation 6 through 19, you are reading the events, the prophetic events of this last seven-year period of time. But the rapture of the church, Paul brought forward to the believer to encourage one another, saying that we will be removed before that period of time, that judgment, because God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation. I believe the most logical conclusion concerning the rapture of the church is a pre-tribulation period. There are some who believe it will happen in the middle of the tribulation, There's a position called the pre-wrath position that is not nearly as popular any longer. There is a post-tribulation, which is again gaining great popularity amongst our Reformed brothers and sisters. And then there are those now who are moving and creating a fifth category, which they then believe there is no rapture at all, but they are still the vast minority. But Paul seemed to always use this event Here and in 1 Corinthians 15, you can read that also as you'd like. But our gathering together is this. He's actually saying that some of us are not going to die, but be snatched up. To meet the Lord in the air and to be with him for all eternity. That's the way I want to go. I want to go on the elevator, okay? That's the way I, I hope to go. And, you know, it could happen at any minute. Is there a prophecy? Is there something that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church takes place? No, there's not. There is not one prophecy that still yet needs to be fulfilled before the Lord could take his church. Putting us in a position of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that he could come back at any time, knowing that after he removes his church, his bride, and we are in heaven with him for all eternity, this world is plunged into a period of time that the Bible is very specific of. If someone were to ask you, say you went to Aldi and you're waiting to check out in the grocery line and someone just tapped you on the shoulder and said, listen, I've been wondering, how many prophecies of Jesus' first coming are there in the Bible? What would you say? Oh, this doesn't happen to you guys? It only happens to me? No, I'm just kidding. Well, there's over 300. And it depends on how you want to count them for the exact number. Well, how many then are there of his second coming? Well, there are over 600 of his second coming. And I believe that the individuals that Paul taught were aware of key prophetic events that needed to take place. One of the greatest prophetic events that have ever taken place is the reestablishment of Israel. 
The Bible has made that clear, that that was one of the big signposts to look for on your roadmap. When you see Israel regathered into their nation, please know and be aware, this is it. We're getting close to the end. Well, that happened in 1948. And so now we see that the prophetic stage, if you will, is being set perfectly according to scripture that was written 2,000 years ago. And as a result, we see each and every step of the way, not only in the micro, but more specifically in the macro view, that the stage and everything is being aligned just as the Bible said it would. But now, Paul needed, notice with me, There is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, we're going to be revisiting these different elements as we go through our roadmap. But that being said, we now come to the next point, the signs of the times. Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospels that he held the religious leaders accountable for not knowing the signs of the times concerning his first coming. Basically saying, you had 300 prophecies concerning my coming And yet you have not discovered that I am exactly who I said I am. Now, there are those that I agree with that believe that the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, which we're going to look at in a session all together by ourselves, uh, by itself, excuse me, because it is so detailed that I believe that it actually indicates mathematically the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. And because it was that exact, Jesus said to those people, he said, why is it that you have not known and recognized the day of your visitation? You should have known the day in which I was coming to you, and yet you did not. Now, if he's given them 330 prophecies concerning his first coming and over 600 of his second, I believe he'll also hold us accountable to know the signs of the time. For example, in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers, and those Sadducees who were familiar with the Old Testament law, he said the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them. He says, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today if the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it, that is them, except the sign of Jonah, which, of course, he was in the belly of the whale for three days as Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and then rose again. And then Jesus left and departed. There are signs to indicate and to show us where we are, on, where we are at on this roadmap towards the end. And as a result, I think we need to be aware of them. 
And things that seemed absolutely impossible a hundred years ago are completely possible and probable today. For example, Revelation chapter 13 tells us that the Antichrist, this individual that we'll talk about more as we go forward, will solicit his allegiance of humans, mankind, by requiring them to take a mark on their hand or on their forehead, and without this mark, they will not be able to buy or to sell. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually had the technology of doing something just like that? Wouldn't it be interesting if our banking became more computer-oriented than people-oriented? Hmm, that's an interesting idea. Do you know that the vast majority of people no longer even balance their banks' accounts any longer? Reconcile them, I'm sorry, their bank accounts any longer? They just trust the bank. I trust the bank to do it for me. Well, I got a bridge to sell you too. Wouldn't it be interesting if we came up with the technology that would allow for some kind of electrical implant in the person's hand that had all of their vital records, information, and you know, from their banking to their health, etc. Wouldn't that be interesting? Do we have something like that? We do. In fact, those in Canada who work for various corporations celebrated the chip implantments into their hands as chipping parties. Chipping parties. A hundred years ago, this stuff wasn't even fathomable you know, from a micro level, let alone a macro level. But now we have not only the micro telling us that it's absolutely possible, we have the macro telling us that it's highly probable also. We are seeing everything indicating that we are closer than we could possibly imagine to the return of Jesus Christ. But we need to wake up. You know, that's a big term today, being awoke. I think Christians, we need to wake up to the fact that, hey, our Lord is closer than we think. Let's live accordingly in light of that knowledge. But as we see, Jesus held them accountable. So we have the second coming. We have the rapture that he speaks of in verse 1. We have them concerned about the fact that that day possibly has come. They were looking for the signs. It indicates to me that what they were experiencing, they were interpreting and concluding as this is it. The Bible is clear. Paul made it abundantly clear that as we get closer to the return of Christ, in the latter days, perilous times will come. And then he goes on to list for us these various traits that we can anticipate and expect within the human race manifesting themselves in this last day culture. And each one of those traits all have one common denominator consistent in each and every one of them, and that is the abandonment of God. You see, when we abandon God here in our nation, when we drove him out from every public place, from the Ten Commandments to any kind of religious symbol on public property, we began to create a vacuum, and that vacuum is now beginning to be filled. Whenever a society abandons God, do you know what the next entity is that becomes the God of that society, becomes the ultimate authority in that society? The government. 
the government. But the ultimate pillars of that government are based upon the foundation of self. The arising of self. That's what we're seeing in our nation today. As we abandon God who leads us to be selfless and sacrificing and love unconditionally, self comes into play. And self in its base form is ugly to say the least. We have been telling our society for years that the problems of society are all related to low self-esteem. Esteem has now been built to the point now where it has actually led to what I believe is manifested through entitlement. We are seeing this unfolding before our eyes and these are equally signs to show us that we are getting even closer to the return of Jesus Christ. We have the geography of Israel being a nation in, and in their land once again. We have uh, technology telling us that the prophetic uh, passages of Revelation are now perfectly possible and probable. We have, uh, in anthropology, we have the rise of self and the abandonment of God. And systems created in the abandonment of God. As soon as we began to filter our society with the idea that they were not created by a God and bear his image, when we told them they were simply an evolutionary result of animals, why are we shocked when people then act like animals? All of these things are pointing towards the end. But what's happening now is that they're all coming together at one time. And we're going to see as we continue this roadmap further things that are going to occur. And we're going to talk about these things in detail. I'm taking a little bit at a time. Whet your appetite. Get you exposed to these terms. Don't think you're going to learn all of this overnight. It doesn't happen that way. But I'm trying to give you the macro so then you can properly interpret the micro. Because I believe that this is the word of God and that it is 100% accurate. And what God says is going to come to pass is going to come to pass. And this time that the Bible has talked about in numerous verses from Old to New Testament, and lastly for our time this morning, notice that he says that we're coming to that day of the Lord. Now, they thought that it had already come. But what is the day of the Lord? The, day, the word day in Hebrew is yom, and it can mean a single day like it does in the context of Revelation, I'm sorry, Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. It can mean a 24-hour period. But yom can also mean a longer period of time. The day of the Lord is not just one day, it is a long period of time. It is a period of time where God does two things. Number one, according to Joel, he judges the unrighteousness of this world, freeing his creation from the, uh, the effects of sin and death. But there's a second dual purpose to the day of the Lord that is equally as important, and that is the restoration of all things bringing things back to the, the standard and the state that they were originally were created in the book of Genesis. 
where he could look back on his creation and says, it's all good. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us very clearly and outlines and describes for us in, in words that I think are still, fall, they still fall short of the actual experience that we are going to have, but show us of this new, that he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Here's the deal, folks. The COVID virus has once again reminded all of us of our fragility. We are fragile humans, aren't we? You and I have been once again confronted with the reality of our mortality. We saw within two and a half months, the whole world shut down. Does that surprise anybody? Shock anybody? Numbers being given each and every day of the numbers of positive cases and those who have died from the COVID virus. The whole world at one moment came under the authority of one institution, the World Health Organization. So when people tell me that they cannot picture a one world government, all I have to do is remind them we just had it, didn't we? To the point that outlets like Google and YouTube, anything that contradicted the World Health Organization's decrees was removed as seditious. Really? In eight weeks, we saw our constitutional freedoms here in the United States of America suspended. Does that not trouble you? In eight weeks. And when the American people at first all said, yes, let's do this, we need to do this, because we felt it was prudent to do this, we felt we wanted to do this uh, to, of course, save lives and to slow the spread so our hospitals and such... We're not overwhelmed when it got past that point. Did you think the governments came out and said, okay, let's reopen? No, they didn't, did they? Not here in Illinois. When people went to church in Chicago, they were met with police at the front entrance of their driveways. Individuals were challenged by police and prosecution for gathering together more than 10 people in any one single locale. But a riot of 20,000 is perfectly acceptable. This is the double-edged sword. You've seen it now. I don't have to illustrate it for you. You've seen it. How fast our constitutional rights were hanging in the balance. How fast we were all limited to what voice we had when we began to speak out here in the state of Illinois saying, listen, we're questioning what is now taking place. We were suppressed. My representative in, in my area has said that anyone who desires to uh, go to a worship service is putting other people's lives at risk. Hmm. But when individual lives are lost due to rioting, that's okay. Folks, you've seen it. The Bible has spoken about it. And the Bible clearly tells us that there is an individual coming that will unite the entire world. And he'll be the epitome of deception and lying and evil. 
and he'll come on the scene peaceably. But then something happens. The Bible tells us that this individual appears to be mortally wounded and lose the, right, the use of his right hand and his right eye. And then on the third day, he will rise again. Hmm, I think I read someone else doing that first, didn't you? You see, Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. And one of the verses in eschatology that has stumped me for 30 years, I believe I finally now understand what Paul meant. In our passage and our roadmap, we're going to come to a verse that says that God at this time will give people over to a delusion, a great delusion, to believe the lies of the Antichrist. And I'm like, how is that possible? And I looked at it from various theological perspectives. But is it possible that today you and I are being sold things as truth that has no truth behind it whatsoever. We are being told that these are scientific conclusions that cannot be argued with, and yet then we find there's no scientific data behind any of it. And not only if you challenge it are you questioned, but if you tell people that you don't believe it, then you're persecuted. Are we seeing the development of this great delusion taking place before us? We're in for a wild ride over the next several weeks. I hope you'll stick in there with us as we go through these various passages and look at the events in more detail, paralleling them with the current events of our society today. But many do not have a theological vocabulary when it comes to eschatology, and I felt that it necessary to bring that forward first. What is the rapture? What is the second coming of Christ? What is the great tribulation period? What is the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? Well, that I do not know. But we will know when he comes to power. But I believe that the Bible tells us that he cannot come to power until we are first removed part of the blessed hope of being a Christian. But please, 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 remember what you just experienced. Remember what it felt like when political leaders were taking away your constitutional rights and you had no recourse. You couldn't go anywhere. You could vent on Facebook, but you were talking to your own people. You know, your friends that probably all think the same way you do. And you're wondering, why is it possible for 500 people to go to Lowe's and, you know, hoard toilet paper? Have we, have we come to the bottom of toilet paper gate yet? Have we understood why the hoarding of toilet paper was so needed? You know, I, I believe that our family witnessed a miracle in our home because every time we came to the last sheet of toilet paper, a new roll would appear the next day. It was like, wow, Lord, you are so good. But what was that about? What was the fighting in the Woodman's parking lot down the street over the toilet paper? What happened? Have we answered that question yet? And how many people were mad when the store said they couldn't return it? I thought that was great too. Folks, we're starting up again. We will be looking at this chapter in detail, so look ahead with us. 
I'm glad you're back with us today. We've talked about a lot of things. I am here if you have questions and like to ask them. If you have questions about this subject, I'd be glad to try to address those questions for you. But I want to give you the biblical understanding of these last days so that you may look out through your window and read the newspaper and watch the TV news and be able to discern what's actually happening before you and understand that all of this is just another step towards our Savior's return. I love the fact that Jesus said to us, I no longer call you servants, but my friends. And all that the Father has revealed to me, I now reveal to you. What a blessed promise that is.